I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshananthan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So for the last couple weeks, we have been watching the media coverage of the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center in New York, which has been coupled this summer and fall with the big debate over President Biden's decision to pull U.S. troops out of Afghanistan, ending our 20-year commitment there. I don't know. I mean, calling what we were doing in Afghanistan and Iraq a commitment really seems like a misnomer. (laughs) Well, well, that's true. I have some other ideas for what to call it, which maybe we'll get to. I'm just going for straight idiocy. Okay, yeah. Bloodthirsty madness? Would that be too strong? (laughs) Or, you know, if you don't like that, how about feckless adventurism or history channel colonialism? What we do want to do is talk specifically about the ways American, Afghan, and Iraqi writers and filmmakers have covered the wars that America started after 9-11. And that's what this episode's about, and this episode is called Bullshit Saviors. Later in the episode, we'll talk to Nadia Hashimi, the author of the novel Sparks Like Stars. But first, we're going to talk to Helen Benedict. Helen is the author of seven novels, five books of nonfiction, a play, and a forthcoming eighth novel, The Good Deed, about war refugees trapped in Greece. Her 2017 novel, Wolf Season, received a starred review in Library Journal, and her novel, Sand Queen, was named a Best Contemporary War Novel by Publishers Weekly. As a nonfiction writer, Benedict's coverage of sexual assault in the U.S. military inspired the Academy Award-nominated documentary The Invisible War and instigated a landmark lawsuit against the Pentagon on behalf of victims of military sexual assault. She's a recipient of the Ida B. Wells Award for Bravery in Journalism and the James Arison Award for Social Justice Journalism. Helen, welcome to the show. Thank you. You have always been a writer, 
and a novelist, but you weren't always a writer about America's post-9-11 wars. Your first novel, published in 1990, was about a British teenager living in Brighton in 1975. Slightly different topic matter. Um, but since America invaded Afghanistan in 2001 and Iraq in 2003, you've published two novels on the effects of those wars and this groundbreaking study about sexual harassment that in the military that Suki was just mentioned. What drew you to this topic? Well, I, initially, the invasion of Iraq. I was just horrified by it because it was very apparent to me, as it was to many, but not enough, um, that we were in the wrong country, that Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11 and had nothing to do with, with revenge, and that we were, we were causing a great deal of misery and death, and both for all, uh, among Iraqis and ourselves, for no reason. And uh, like many, I was just so uh, horrified by this that I felt that, what can I do about it? And I'm a writer, so what am I going to do about it? I'm going to write about it. But what was I going to write? And then so I did some research and quickly found out that more women were serving uh, in that war with the military than in any American war in history. But nobody had recognized this fact at the time and nobody was writing about women soldiers, except in the most stereotypical way. So that's what got me started on interviewing women veterans who'd just come back from Iraq, some from Afghanistan, back in 2006 and seven when I began my work. And those are the stories that led me to discover the horrific epidemic of sexual assault and harassment that was going on at the same time it was going on even in war while these women were risking their lives and limbs and mental health in war. Uh, but at the whole time I was also very concerned about what was happening to Iraqi civilians because we Americans tend to forget about that side of things very often and write about ourselves instead. And I didn't want to be one of those writers. So I went on to um, find Iraqi refugees and interview them and follow up with my novels, Sand Queen and Wolf Season, where I have a, a major protagonist who's an uh, Iraqi. I mean, that was uh, interesting. We know each other in part because my novel, The Good Lieutenant, has a female protagonist. And so I was always interested in other people who were who had done that same. I had that same moment as you like, oh, my God, there's a lot of women serving in this war and they're uh, effectively on the front lines, even though that technical designation didn't come until much later. So, I mean, right. you know, that that was partly my way in as well. I, and Sugi, you, you're I, when we were doing research for this, I saw you on a list of contemporary conflict writers. How did you come to write? You're not you didn't write about this war, but you did write about war, um, do write about war. How did you come to be interested in that subject? I write primarily about the Sri Lankan Civil War and also its effects in diaspora, which I think I'm interested in, of course, primarily because of my family. And then as a result, have, of course, I mean, in looking at other conflicts, have seen such interesting parallels. And then I think also, I don't know, I, I think a lot about, um, there's a Camilla Shamsi essay from Guernica several years ago, which I think I've probably referenced on the show before even. And that essay sort of called attention to American writers' failure to write critically about American imperialism. So it is something that I think sort of since that essay, which came out maybe after my first novel came out, um, that I've thought a lot about. But I think, yeah, my position is somewhat different. I'm also reminded, as we're talking about um, the great memoir, Unbecoming, which I reviewed for the New York Times, and we had Anuradha Bhagwati on the show 
and mm-hmm. some of my familiarity and interest mm-hmm. in the t- this topic, um, specifically sexual assault in the military, also comes from reading Anuradha's book, which I think was really so interesting. And so, you know, as you research your your own stuff, you inevitably find yourself going down little um, internet wormholes to other destinations that don't directly connect to the book. And like, you're kind of like, I'm interested in this. So I'm going to justify just continuing to read. Whereas really, I mean, perhaps I should finish my book. So it's interesting, it's your, it's your past that was the thing there, right? Your family's past and your, their nationality in a way, right? That, that, that war's in the past, right? I'm just saying that's interesting because this war that happened, you know, that was, was a, a thing that occurred that I didn't know. It wasn't part of my life up until when it happened. My, my main reaction to the war when we invaded both Afghanistan and Iraq, I had the same reaction as Helen, which was to be terrified of it because I had a friend who fought in the Gulf War in 1991, uh, who later had uh, problems, I think, with PTSD and committed suicide. And so my awareness of how dangerous this was going to be felt very different than the culture at large when it was happening, if that makes sense. I think my own awareness of the Gulf War, and Helen, I'm curious, curious to hear you talk about this as well. I mean, I was, I was a kid. I, was, I remember being in the fifth grade, and I had one classmate whose father was in, was in the military and he came in and spoke to us about the war. And I knew no one else who had any kind of real, what I can refer to perhaps as direct involvement. And so I think I was really very much um, insulated from the way that we talked, that the country at large talked about and thought about that war. And then I think when, um, when we went to Afghanistan, I think I wasn't really that politicized. And I don't know, I... I kind of wish I could go back and have a stronger reaction and sort of go to the streets with many of my friends who did to say no. And I think by the time we were going to Iraq, I had a reaction I can now more logically defend. But yeah, Helen, what is when you think back to to these earlier wars and you're thinking about um, America's role in them, there's this, this succession of other conflicts that lead us in this I think that, well, I would say the first thing that that awoke me to the problem with war was being, uh, as you can hear, I'm British, I'm not American, but I did spend some of my teenage years in the States and I was in Berkeley High School, public high school, and I was watching my friends get drafted into to Vietnam. And I was on the streets demonstrating against that war. Um, I was on the streets demonstrating against the first Gulf War but my, it's not that I was afraid for American soldiers. I could not so much. I, couldn't, I can't, couldn't bear the injustice of it. I still can't bear it. I couldn't bear the wrongheadedness of it. And I couldn't bear the glamorization of mm, war yeah. that we do over and over again. And I, I will say during 9-11, I wasn't living in America. I was living in France. And the perspective, there was a huge outpouring of sympathy for all the people who were killed in the towers um, and the other attacks. But there was not a huge outpouring of warmongering. And being in that atmosphere where people did not have the instant reaction of this is war, this is revenge, and then watching Bush on television, on CNN, and hearing the, the, the soundtrack that CNN would play while he spoke, which is like the, was like the soundtrack of a war movie, the instant reaction of this is war absolutely appalled me. And um, I just needed to push back as much as I could. So it was very much a reaction against imperialism and, and, and the lies. 
we were being just bombarded with lies. And it wasn't very hard to know that, in my view, because I was just an ordinary person doing research and I knew that Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden were enemies and there was no way they would, they would help each other, that Saddam would have anything to do with it. I mean, it, it was just... Um, I wasn't a fan of Saddam. I don't want to be misunderstood. But the combination of the lies, the glamorization, the, the macho posturing posturing of this country, it drove me nuts. And then when I started to think about who would actually pay for it, I just had to do something. I mean, that was the other thing. You're right to mention uh, that all that glamorizi- glamorization. And of course, the, the in, in the Gulf War, a tremendous number of Iraqis were killed, even if they had invaded Kuwait. Like, you know, one of the reasons that my friend, I think, had, had that sort of moral injury was that he, you know, you're involved in killing a lot of people. It's 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 terrible thing to do, and that was a glamorized thing at the time. The Gulf War was this huge, wonderful, like a, I don't know, like a Disney ride of a war or something like that. But if you look at it, actually what occurred, it was tragic and hor- horrific, kind of slaughter. And then to go back and 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 then there there also I feel like there also had been a buildup toward that over those years in the 90s, that wasn't about the towers. That was about. Uh, a glamorization of the of the greatest generation and all these World War II films and all this sort of a getting away from the critique of war that happened in in Vietnam War films, right, where war was a bad thing and starting to re-glamorize war and it was exciting again and people wanted to have a war in 2003. I think it's, I mean, it's, imp- it's important not to forget that. When I started interviewing women who fought in Iraq um, and Afghanistan, I really came to understand that the thing that causes the greatest moral injury is how you hurt other people more than how you were even hurt. But on top of it all, for so many women, they had a kind of, they had a double trauma because they were also being persecuted by their own comrades. That's why my book is called The Lonely Soldier, because they were denied that camaraderie, that famous camaraderie that keeps, keeps um, soldiers and Marines and so on going. You know, the, the brotherhood that so many movies have been made about and so many books have been read. And a lot of women never get that instead. They're treated as pariahs. So that adds to it. And I have plenty of sympathy about that. But nonetheless, I kept feeling, why aren't we paying attention to what we're doing to Iraqis, what we're doing to Afghan civilians? Just, Just like it took so long to pay attention to what we did to Vietnamese civilians. It took decades. I want to ask, of course, all of us being conflict writers in one way or another, be curious to hear what you think of President Biden's decision to remove U.S. troops from Afghanistan after this long period of time. Well, it wasn't entirely his decision, was it? Remember who made the original bargain was Trump. And um, I think we've got to be very careful not to fall into the right wing trope of blaming it all on him. Bush invaded without an exit plan. Um, Obama was responsible for the surge, which in some ways was good, in other ways perhaps not. I think, you know what the original sin here? The two original sins. One is the American arrogance, the assumption that everybody in the world wants to be like us and all we have to do is go in there and force it on them and they'll be happy. The other is that um, the ignorance. You know, we went into a, to both Afghanistan and Iraq without knowing anything about their culture, their history, their language, their desires, and not willing to listen or learn. 
And I might say, I mean, look, I think we couldn't stay there forever. I don't think it was a terrible decision to leave. We can't have forever wars. It probably could have been done a lot better. I'm more worried about the uh, failure of our intelligence forces and why they didn't know what was going to happen better. Because, I mean, I've been interviewing Afghan refugees for a few years now, and it's well known, if you read anything about it, that the Taliban was already in control of the fifth of the country. They were in control of most of the rural areas. They were already stopping women from, and girls from going to school. They were already beating up lawyers and teachers in the street. They were already behaving the way they'd all, always behaved and the way they're behaving now. So why there was all this surprise about, oh my goodness, the Taliban took over so fast and oh no, they're not keeping their promises about being better. I don't get that. I don't get that on the part of the, of the intelligence community, po our politicians or the media, the reporters who kept reporting that without questioning it. A lot of them did questioning it, but, but those who didn't. So also let's not perpetuate another myth, which is that, you know, that the Americans were such a great presence. We also oh, brutalized people. We also, we, we also committed war crimes while over there. Not everybody, but we did. And, um, you know, I've also talked to enough Afghans and Iraqis who are not particularly happy at all about the way they were treated every time they ran across a U.S., uh, you know, military person. So, um, again, a lot of cultural mistakes, too, a lot of misunderstandings, a lot of clumsiness, and a lot of We're going to talk about this a little bit at the but, end, yeah, but I do think it's really important yeah. to not forget that while there were perfect and wonderfully nice soldiers, there were a lot of soldiers over there who wanted to kill people and who wanted specifically to kill people from the Middle East, guys that I saw and was with, Right. I brought this shirt, I bought this in Mosul the last time I was in Iraq in 2010. Here's what it, it's got an American, it's got the Statue of Liberty giving you the finger and it says, we're coming motherfuckers, Mosul, Iraq. I'm showing it on the video, you're not gonna be able to see it. I saved that shirt because it was just chilled the living fuck out of me when I saw it, it was being sold by an Iraqi vendor to soldiers on the, on the base there, right? But you have to remember that that was a significant portion of people who were fighting that war felt exactly like that T-shirt, not like the perfect nice soldier that we imagine and think about. You know, I saw it. I know that it was true. So I think, you know, I, I'd like to think that, you know, our presence, our presence in Afghanistan is rightfully drawn to a close, but then the presence of that conflict with us, you know, how will we account for it? What mechanisms of justice will people be able to pursue? For so long, we've had international mechanisms of justice that ex basically exclude Americans. American exceptionalism means that, you know, who that that family wants to be, they want to be resettled, I understand. Um, so how are we going to account for um, what we owe? I mean, we can't make this right. But what can we do at all? Um, which I think is going to be a question for decades and decades. Yes. And not only, I mean, especially for us, of course, but also for other countries. And meanwhile, you know, all the, most of the countries in Europe are busy throwing up barriers to stop Afghans coming, Afghan refugees coming. Greece has just done that and several other. They don't want them. Nobody wants them. You know, what do we owe? What do we owe the Afghan people? And how can we pay them back? How can we help? I think that's the question we need to keep asking. And we need, we just, war isn't the answer.
but help, but nor is abandoning them entirely, especially. I agree, Helen. My my neighbor across the street was a boat person whose husband had been killed in Vietnam and came here in the 70s, right? And so that those all the Vietnamese refugees who came here were have been a tremendous addition to American culture and have been like wonderful citizens. And it's wonderful to have them in the country. I feel the same way about the Afghans, but I expect that the greeting will not be as nice as I would prefer for it to be. And I want to also say, like, I, I met many soldiers who were extremely idealistic and, and who did wonderful things and were very patient and were not you know, uh, were fair-minded about the people that they were trying to help and didn't want to kill them, right? So I want to say there's a balance of people there. There's both things. But your your novel, Wolf Season, deals with that exact sort of trauma and the way that it affects a young woman, an Iraq war veteran. I wondered, uh, and, and, and her encounter with an Iraqi doctor, uh, Naima Jassim, could you Talk to us about the inspiration for that book and then maybe maybe set it up and read to us. Yeah. The inspiration came from a little news item I read somewhere where I read about an Iraq war veteran who had um, brought home to America, sponsored his, his Iraqi interpreter and his Iraqi family and brought them to his home to, because the interpreter was being given, you know, he was being threatened with being killed for having worked for Americans. And his wife said to him, said to the, to the veteran, it's them or us, I can't live with these people. It's them or me. And he chose them. So she left. And this was a little news item. And I thought the drama in that, that he chose his turp as military talk for an interpreter over his wife is so interesting. And that's what actually triggered the whole idea for this book. Because, but, um, but eventually, and then also because I was so interested in the Iraqi side, as I mentioned before, and had begun to interview Iraqi refugees, there are quite a lot of them uh, who had been settled in Albany, near where I live part-time, Albany, New York. But I got fascinated with the, with the idea of going back and forth between an Iraqi point of view and an American point of view. So I did that in Sand Queen, which was the first novel with about this subject, which was set in Iraq. And then I thought, let's follow Naima when she's already a refugee and what, it, and she's become a doctor because she was a medical student in Iraq. And meanwhile, there's this woman with a daughter and the woman, Rin, is, is really traumatized by the way she was treated by, she was raped by her fellow soldiers in Iraq, as well as just war. And what happens when the two of them are brought together in this pediatrics clinic. So I should mention too that Rin's daughter was born blind. She was conceived in Iraq. She was born blind. And Rin thinks it's because at one point in an explosion, she was covered with uh, depleted uranium, which happens to a lot of people and can cause birth defects. Uh, so that's the setup for, for that sort of how the novel came about with those ideas. She also lives it. I met a veteran who lives with her child in the forest with three pet wolves, and that's that was a real person in a different state than I give to Rin, but Rin has pet wolves, which is not unusual among veterans, I discovered. <laughs> and that was a fascinating thing, too. So can you go ahead and read that passage? They've just, so Rin and her daughter have just arrived at her pediatrics clinic, which is for the children of veterans. And um, for a checkup for Junie, who's nine years old, and as I said, blind. But meanwhile, there's a hurricane whipping up. 
and they're not really quite aware of it yet. So I'll just begin shortly after they arrive in the clinic. The wind rampages through woods and parking lots, streets and gardens, seizing sumacs, maples and willows and shaking them until their boughs drop like shot geese. Up the hill, the rain-bloated creek presses its new weight against the crumbling dam, pushing and pounding until with a great roar it bursts through, leaps its banks and rushes headlong down the slope toward the clinic, a foaming wall of red mud, branches and rocks, flattening every shrub and tree in its path. Inside the clinic, the air conditioning hums, voices murmur, babies whimper. Wendy Fitch, the nurse, hovers by the door of the examining room, checking her watch. Dr. Jasim might be great with her patience, but the woman has zero sense of time. Whether this has something to do with her culture or is only an individual quirk, Wendy doesn't know. But the doctor needs to finish up here and fetch her son from his friend's house, the boys' summer baseball camp having sensibly closed against the impending storm. The rain is beating on the windows now, and Wendy can feel the patient's parents growing more restless by the minute, as eager as she is to get back to their canned food and bottled water, their batteries and candles. Her pulse quickens. As a lowly nurse, she has to bear the brunt of the parents' ire, and these are no ordinary parents either. They are all military veterans, half of them wrapped up or angry, like that pit bull of a woman, Rin Drummond. We better hurry, storm's coming on quick, Wendy says, when Naimo emerges at last from the first examining room. Watch out for this one, she adds in a whisper, touching her temple. Room three. Naima nods with a resigned smile and walks towards the door. Rin can't believe they gave Junie an Arab for a doctor. Typical of the VA to hire the second rate. The woman probably bought a certificate online, did her training on YouTube, probably blew up some sucker of a soldier or two on her way here as well. Mommy, what's wrong? Rin takes a breath and another. It's okay, it's just this place. She strokes her daughter's hair and pulls her close once more, feeling her frail body shiver. A knock on the door, gentle, yet it sends a spasm through Rin's every nerve. The door opens and in walks a woman in a white coat, as if she's a real doctor. No headscarf, at least, but there's that familiar olive-brown skin and blue-black hair. She's carrying a clipboard file, which she reads before even saying hello, which Rin considers damn rude. Then she looks up. A splattered white scar on her right cheekbone. Most likely a shrapnel wound. Rin would know, having some 15 herself. Good morning, the doctor says to Junie, voice snake oil smooth accent, not much more than the lilt, but oh so recognisable. You are June, right? But Junie isn't listening. Her head's up, cocked at the, an angle that means her mind is elsewhere. Mommy? Rin is shaking, the face, the scar. Her breathing is coming short and airless. Mommy? Junie's voice is more urgent now. I hear something. There is no need to be frightened, dear, the doctor says, and Rin can't tell whether she's talking to Junie or her. Mummy! Junie jumps down from the examining table, her robe falling off, leaving her in nothing but white cotton underpants, skin and bone. Something bad's happening. Get out of here, Rin yells at the doctor. What is the matter? The doctor looks confused. No, not her, Junie cries. Run! 
and she hurls herself into the dangerous air, unable to see the metal table covered with glass bottles and needles, the jutting chair legs on the floor. Rin reaches out and catches her, but she wriggles free in true terror. Let us out, she screams, and the doctor turns around, bewildered, saying something Rin can't hear, because at that moment the window bursts open and a torrent of red water crashes through, smashing them against the wall, knocking them over, pounding them with a wall of mud and branches and shattered glass. Rin's soldier training, her wool wolf heart, these are not in her blood for nothing. She struggles to her feet, seizes Junie around the waist and forces the door open, kicking away the flailing doctor, tangled in her white coat, her long hair, her scar and her legacy. Rin slams her face down in the water and steps on her, using her body to lever her daughter through the door and out of the water to safety. Thank you so much. Um, I'm just totally transported by that passage. Am I wrong to think that Rin and Naima are two characters who have been harmed and disregarded by their respective cultures in similar ways? Um, yes, no, not wrong, but not entirely similar ways. Because Naima was doing fine in her culture until um, war came along. It's war that, that's, not, that's knocked her life askew, killed her husband, and... Uh, and taken the leg of her child, who you didn't meet in this passage. So, but she's not a victim of sexual assault. Um, she came from an upper middle class family. She was in medical school when the, she was going to be a doctor uh, when the war started. She was fine. But Rin, working class, uh, went, really went to war because she didn't know what else to do with her life and had no, couldn't find a future which is so true for so many people, and then was betrayed by her own comrades and also lost her husband in the war. He was killed in Iraq. So she's in after... When she was a new widow, she was attacked by his friends and raped by them. So the betrayal is very deep, which is why she's so screwed up and she's blaming Naima, you know, when it, you know, not her fault at all, which is why this passage is so harsh. Things develop and Rin, Rin learns. She learns to, to get out of that frame of mind eventually. But yeah, so they both suffered, but in different ways, I would say. So I just, I'm going to note this because, and then it, I think we need, well, I want us to move on to talking about the general way that people have written about yeah. um, these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan since uh, 2001. But a lot of talk has been given lip service, not, maybe sometimes serious, about the dangers that women in Afghanistan are going to face now that American troops are going to leave, supposedly, and, and, and the women, well, not supposedly, are leaving, and women will be discriminated against by the Taliban. But it is ironic to me, given that you have written about sexual assault and military culture, that, you know, that is not discussed in the same way, right? And I, I just find that something to note, right? If you want to comment on that, Helen, that's fine. I'll give you some space. Sure. You know, women are discriminated and degraded and attacked and assaulted and beaten up and raped all over the world. Forced marriage, it's a worldwide problem. Um, I wouldn't ever go so far as to saying what American women face in the military is the same as what women face under the Taliban. But sexism is sexism, misogyny is misogyny, you know, and um, disrespect for women as human beings is is the same. 
it's how it's manifested that that's different. Will why we don't? It, you're you're real. You make a very good point, though, Whitney, because I've noticed this. We are so much more willing to talk about how badly treated uh, women are treated in other countries. If you remember a few years back, there was a, a this rash of, of really brutal violent rapes and murders in India that we were giving a lot of press to. And there were all these articles analysing, you know, the, the misogyny of Indian culture and how it led to men thinking they could treat women like this and all that. We never turn that spotlight on ourselves. We never cover the story of, you know, why do men rape women? Why do men constantly beat up women? What? How does a little boy baby boy who is born not a rapist turned into one you know and what 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 are we doing in our culture to make this our own culture such a, a, a so rife with violence against women as it is and i think that this has so much to do with also sort of the grand i'm referring specifically i suppose to american western and eurocentric depictions of war right the the colonizer, the occupier, the savior, the rescuer, um, who's coming in to save, right, the damsel in distress so much of the time. So I'm curious to kind of just broaden out from this a little bit. Which is why you decided to call this episode Bullshit Saviors, which is a fine title as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> was it me? I thought it was you. <laughs> That's a great, good title. Yeah, I think, you know, from a bird's eye perspective, present company excluded I'm curious to hear your take, Helen, on how American writers and filmmakers have done at describing our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. I hate to make generalizations, but I would... Let me talk about movies first. Um, oh, but this is true. I mean, there are real exceptions to what I'm about to say, thank God. But we do have a propensity to glamorize war and to glamorize soldiers and to turn them into, you know, big muscular heroes running around with big muscular guns. <laughs> you know, we do tend to cover, uh, to, to portray civilians of other countries in stereotypes. They're either villains or, or saints. They're very rarely given full, the full complexity of a human being. And especially Hollywood and especially the big blockbuster types we have such a long, long history in this in this country of glamorizing war th through entertainment, and um, we keep perpetuating the big lie, you know, that that war is exciting and glamorous, whereas in fact it's horrible, usually unjust, and and it corrupts the human soul and heart. And there are, thank goodness, writers and filmmakers who go straight for that, but. We need more of them, and I wish I wish big Hollywood would do that more and not always make it about the suffering American. I mean, I totally agree with all of those things and feel like that is really has what was a known problem coming into this war and has not been solved by a lot of the fiction and and movies about this war. I did write a piece once for the New Republic called "What Should a War Movie Do?" and and you know, for me. Uh, one of the, it was Catherine Bigelow, I think, who wrote, who did The Hurt Locker, which is a movie that I think is terrible, um, to be perfectly honest, who said, I'm anti-war, but I'm pro the people forced to engage with it, which is a way of not taking a stand, I think. And and she ended up making a movie that made 
what is that, Renner? What's his name? The guy who's Hawkeye now in the Marvel films. Jeremy Renner, like, of course, he's now Hawkeye in the Marvel films. Like, I mean, that movie had could have done so many things, but what it didn't do was the thing it needed to do, which is what Helen said, is not glamorize war. Not make it like a, a place where you find your true brothers and your true meaning and then walk off the back of a plane at the end to ACDC playing about what a badass you are. I mean, that's really what that movie did. I, I want to hear, hear more specific offenders. <laughs> this book... Generation Kill, does anybody remember? This was one of the first books written about Iraq by Evan Wright. Here's the back copy. I just want, I would love to hear Helen and, and Sugi comment on this. They were called a generation without heroes. They were, then they were called upon to, to be heroes. Within hours of 9-11, America's war on terror fell to those like the Marines of the 1st Recon Battalion, the first generation dispatched into open-ended combat since Vietnam. They were a new breed of warrior, unrecognizable to their forebears, soldiers raised on hip-hop, internet porn, and video games, a disparate band of born-again Christians, dopers, Buddhists, and New Agers who glean their precepts from kung fu movies and Oprah Winfrey. Cocky, brave, headstrong, wary, and mostly unprepared for the physical, emotional, and moral horrors ahead, the 1st Suicide Battalion would spearhead the Blitzkrieg on Iraq. And there's more. There you go. I mean, you know, it's easy to laugh at it because it seems so over the top, but it's actually really dangerous because this kind of propaganda, this the way the way this country is, entertainment industry is so in love with this image of war. It's macho, super macho. What's more macho than a soldier or a marine? You know, I think it's very dangerous, and it's also it's a lie. It's a big, big lie. The other part of that lie that I also rebel against is is the idea that there, and many, many people peddle this, that the one saving grace of being in the army in combat is the wonderful brotherhood that you're going to have with all of your pallies, right? And that brotherhood is not happen afterwards when you're having PS, PTSD and you're in miserable pain or you're dealing with the fact that you killed people. I mean, and sometimes people betray each other in war and aren't brothers. I mean, it's not it, the, the magic brotherhood thing that that it needs to be seen for the cliche that it is, right? People are the same in war as they are as humans. Nobody's the perfect brother. You may have friends, but you could have had those friends without war. Well, and also it ignores the people who don't uh, who are not admitted to that brotherhood, which goes back to what I was saying earlier about women. But it includes gays. It often includes pe- people of color. It includes anybody that, you know, that the, the social leaders, like high school, of course, a lot of them are just about, just out of high school, you know, who don't deem, who, who they are, they're deemed weak or misfits in some way. People commit suicide over this, you know, young Young recruits cook some, kill themselves sometimes because of the way they're treated by their comrades. What kind of brotherhood is that and why? And what happened to I sisterhood? I think it's so interesting <laughs> that, I mean, I feel like I grew up really on narratives of American wrongdoing in Vietnam, American mistakes in Vietnam. It isn't everything from Karate Kid to, and then I remember Casualties of War coming out and I had been a Michael J. Fox fan, but sort of family ties, Alex P. Keaton, Teen Wolf era. And then all of a sudden he's in this Vietnam movie about, you know, which is really about violence perpetrated on Vietnamese civilians. And But I wonder at what point we're going to start seeing like a real influx in popular and mainstream culture in like a, a way that becomes part of our American cultural and emotional vocabulary. When will the kind of wrongdoing that we perpetrated in Iraq and Afghanistan enter 
the culture in that way. I, I think it does exist in, in, in novels, in some, some of literary novels, including the company here. And there, I don't know if you ever saw The Messenger. My, my favorite movie about Iraq was, it was Oren Moverman's movie, The Messenger. It was a small, quiet movie. So it was all just about dealing with, and again, it was very American-oriented, but it was quiet and uh, avoided sentimentality, but it was not glamorizing war because it was about death. <laughs> and it was really well done. Um, but in terms of kind of the blockbuster type thing, or the big, big series, you know, big popular Netflix series. I don't know. I mean, I, I stopped going to see those movies a long time ago because they would make me so angry I couldn't stand well, it. Well, I will recommend two books. One is Ahmed <laughs> uh, Sadawi's book, Frankenstein in Baghdad. Uh, Ahmed, did I say Ahmed? Yeah. I hope I said that right. And then I'm going to just bring one back from Europe for your country, man, or former countryman. Robert Graves' book, Goodbye to All That, is one of the best war memoirs that I've ever oh, read. I Most love that honest. book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think we need books like that about this war. Yeah. I actually wrote a piece. I wrote an essay for LitHub a few years ago recommending Iraqi We'll books. link to that. Uh, or, uh, un, un, uh, yeah, un, uh, unknown, many of them unknown by most Americans, but all available here. And the Frankenstein was on it. That was one of them. And Sinun Antun's work, Sinan Antun's work, I really like too. The Corpse Exhibition is another one. Um, but there have been, you know, there, I, I like Katie Schultz's work. I like Jesse Goolby's work. I like um, Kara Hoffman's work. And, um, you know, there are those of us out here who, are, who, who write about war in order to de-glamorize it and, and to get to what it actually does to the human heart and soul. And our, uh, our friend Matt Gallagher, who's been on the show a couple of times, I would include him in that group. And Matt, I would too. And, you know, you always leave That's people That's all right. We're not going to put any this. more people on it because we have to say goodbye. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Helen. And before we end, I'd love for you to tell your, our listeners about what you're working on now. Sure. Well, I just finished a novel that will be out in a couple of years called The Good Deed. I've spent the last three years working on the refugee camp, um, not really working, but interviewing people there in Greece and in how, where there are many Syrians as well as Afghans, Iraqis, and refugees from various conflicts. Well, it sounds great. Um, we will look forward to it. Thank you, Helen, so much for joining us today. And we encourage our listeners to go out and pick up a copy of Wolf Season or any of Helen's previous books and to keep an eye out for The Good Deed. Thank you, both of you. And now we're thrilled to welcome Nadia Hashimi to the show. Nadia is a pediatrician turned novelist who draws on her Afghan culture to craft internationally best-selling books for adults as well as young readers. Her novels span generations and continents, taking on themes like forced migration, conflict, poverty, misogyny, colonialism, and addiction. She enjoys conversations with readers of all ages in libraries, book festivals, classrooms, and living rooms. With translations in 17 languages, she's connected with readers around the world. Nadia, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's very nice to have you here, and thanks for joining us. Um, Afghanistan has a long history of occupation and insurgency. The recent news is, of course, the withdrawal of American troops after being there for 20 years and the takeover of the country by the Taliban. In my opinion, this kind of American war, and here I'm thinking of Afghanistan and Iraq, these post-9-11 wars, um, Iraq, I was a reporter in Iraq, is a travesty, you know, and, and a lot of American writing about it and movies 
have been a sort of failed to represent what actually occurred there. Your work, on the other hand, resists a lot of these sort of stereotypes I think these movies fall into. Your newest novel, Sparks Like Stars, start, begins in April 1978 at the start of the Sour Revolution, a coup that set off a decades-long struggle for power. Since our topic today is bullshit saviors, could you discuss some of the civil conflicts that eventually led to the American invasion and also talk about why you chose to put the beginning of your novel during the Sour Revolution for those of our listeners who might not be familiar with it? Sure. And, you know, I chose the Sour Revolution because I felt like that was a representation, that that event was a representation of the the actual triggers of what led Afghanistan into what would become then decades of war. And, you know, I, I grew up like anyone else. I was raised in the United States. I was born and raised here. So I grew up on these American crafted stories, narratives around the situation in Afghanistan. And so I was consuming what was available for public consumption. And that was basically, you know, Rambo pounding through the countryside on horseback to fight alongside these Mujahideen freedom fighters against the evil communists of Soviet soldiers then retreating and the celebration of Afghan warriors bringing this Red Army to its knees and and this being their Vietnam. And then there was, you know, the post 9-11 news where all of a sudden we were seeing on, um, you know, in papers and in different images, these burqa clad women were being beaten by the Taliban. And, you know, we were honing in on these events without any context or without any connective tissue. And I could see in book clubs that I have been lucky enough to participate in around my other stories that... There were a lot of gaps in the understanding of Afghanistan's history. Can I just so, say, it is yeah. so incredibly troubling and such a gigantic example of what a fuck up we have done reporting on this, that I, in all the years that we've been in Afghanistan, have never heard the term sour revolution. Now, I mean, I, re- I reported on Iraq. I know a, lot, a fair amount about Iraq history. I never was in Afghanistan and write about it. But still, come on. Right. I think we actually skip over the Sour Revolution because it doesn't fit with the narrative, right? The narrative was, oh, my God, the Russians invaded Afghanistan. And then here comes the savior moment of, well, let's go in and we can save them, right? So that's why we were funding the freedom fighters and all of that. Um, And so that's what I wanted to go back to. I wanted to go back to that moment because of two reasons. One, because I wanted to showcase to people the peaceful, beautiful, kind of idyllic cobble that I inherited from my parents and their stories and the family members. Um, And then also to be able to get at, like I said, you know, what was the ideology of this war, of this conflict that went on and on? And it's it's not as simple as the Soviet Union invading. There is there has to be an acknowledgement of the U.S.'s strategic presence and engagement in Afghanistan. So in Sparks Like Stars, we hear your characters talking about how foreigners talk about and to them, which is sort of I love sort of hearing that little bit of um, fictional gossip as they th- consider how to position themselves in relation to these people who, th- who want so much power there. Historically, American propaganda has portrayed U.S. imperialism in countries such as Afghanistan as acts of justice and salvation, as, y- as you've already mentioned. And these narratives are bullshit. So like, what specific mis- mistakes are typical American narratives about Afghanistan getting wrong? Like, what mistakes are American writers making as they tell these stories? And how, what consequences does that have? So there are a bunch of mistakes. Um, I would say, number one, it might seem superficial, but it's important to start with, is the Afghan people are called Afghans, not Afghanis. And I I thank you all for for getting it right. But um, 
Then we move well, on we, we, to Americans learn how to say that every five years or so when there's a big story and then they just go ahead and forget it. You know, fine. <laughs> I don't really blame people. I think that, uh, you know, of all the things that are happening, that's the least egregious. Uh, but I'm, I'm I'm here to remind you. Right. Um, the second is that this Islamic or jihadist movement that uh, has arisen, that had arisen in Afghanistan, was spontaneous and that we had absolutely nothing to do with it. But, you know, it's pretty well documented in books that, you know, if you care to read them, that the CIA had funded programs and enabled the creation of these, you know, militia groups. I mean, down to, I mean, one of the things that I find really fascinating is in the late 1980s, the United States, the United States started spending millions, I mean, to the tune of like $50 million through USAID, then via the University of Nebraska and Omaha to produce school books in Dari and Pashto for Afghan children that were called like the alphabet for jihad literacy. And so like G is for gun, J is for jihad kind of thing. And then these were smuggled into... Afghanistan through the Pakistan's uh, military intelligence, the ISI. That's a big one. The next one I say is the idea that women's rights are kind of, they just don't jive with Afghan culture. Or it's limited to the cities only. You know, Afghan women have been making steady progress. Women's rights are always the early casualties of any instability, of any war. And, you know, women in Afghanistan had the right to vote before their counterparts in the United States. What would have happened if Afghanistan had not been destabilized? Well, we will never know, right? And then lastly, I would say is this idea that Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. You know, to an extent that may be true. I, I understand the idea behind it, but it kind of makes it sound like the empires were the only ones who died in Afghanistan. Afghanistan has lost so many Afghans to these wars, to these imperial conquests. And it's been honestly the location of proxy wars. Whereas the empires have gone on to survive and, 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 you know, to persist, but Afghanistan has continued to suffer. I wonder if you could read to us a little bit from your book. Absolutely. All right. So, you know, Sparks Like Stars is, we, we've mentioned that it begins in the Sour Revolution. Um, so that's April of 1978. And there's a military coup. The rumblings in, on the ground are... Basically, there's a push and pull between the communists movement and then the more U.S. friendly. And so the culmination of that is this military revolution. And into this context, I've inserted a fictional girl named Satara. And so she is a witness and survivor of that event. So I'm going to read from the beginning of chapter six. I dared not peek out from behind the curtain, hidden from view. I grasped at every possibility that kept my family alive. Surely someone, anyone, was rushing them to a hospital where they would be stitched up and restored. I prayed for white gauze and syringes in the able hands of doctors, but these hopes were flimsy as soap bubbles, especially as voices I did not recognize echoed through the hallways unchallenged. When I was four years old, I'd been awakened one night by my mother's shouts. A burglar had crept onto the roof of our cobble home and sent a vase crashing as he'd slipped into our home through a window. When he fled, my father gave chase, leaping from rooftop to rooftop. He caught the man on the roof of a home one block away. At least, that's how I remembered it. It was as likely that he'd chased the man down the street as it was that he'd catapulted across the homes of our neighbors while they slept. Regardless, this was my memory of the night, and it became part of how I saw my father. It was the reason I believed my father could and would protect us from any danger. I remember when he, talked me, when he walked me to school, I would watch his shadow stretch long ahead of us and believe it was the shape of truth 
To me, day or night, Baba was larger than life. That was why I could not comprehend why I'd seen Baba buckle as he had. I expected him to appear in the window at any moment and pull me onto the roof of the building to escape. I peeked at the clock on the wall. After three hours of standing, the muscles of my legs burned. Still, I stood as straight as I could, trying to keep my body hidden in the small sanctuary behind the curtain and out of view to anyone looking up from outside. Where was everyone? Why hadn't President Daoud exploded onto the scene with loyal troops to round up the murderers? I listened hard and eventually heard the boom of President Daoud's voice rise from somewhere deep in the palace. Traitors! I couldn't make out any other words. I felt unmoored and wanted badly to slide down and give myself over to the floor. The moon still glowed bright, but in an hour or so, the rising sun would turn the horizon pink. I listened to the movement of boots, the thud of thick soles on fine carpets. I heard orders barked and loud grunts of exertion. I dared not peek. I only looked down at the darkened carpet beneath my feet and waited for the stench of my urine to lead the soldiers to me. They moved up and down the length of the hall, going in and out of rooms. I closed my eyes tight, though what I saw with my eyes shut was more terrifying than what I saw when I kept them open. Footsteps entered the library slowly. I heard a man's breathing, the sharp intake of air through flared nostrils. I was working up the nerve to smash my elbow into the window and take my chances leaping to the ground when the curtain snapped back. I found myself face to face with a soldier, or more precisely, the unblinking eye of a Kalishnikov. I closed my eyes shut and quaked. I do not know how much time passed this way with my existence dependent on one finger curled against a trigger. At some point, I opened my eyes. The rifle's tip quavered but stayed trained on me. I dared to look past the barrel to the trembling arms that held it up. I saw a man, panting, his red-rimmed eyes bulging. He looked over his shoulder and back at me. He wiped his palm on the thigh of his pants. "'You must go,' he hissed, nudging my arm with the rifle's barrel. I jolted when the warm metal touched my skin. "'Go!' He wiped the sweat from his brow. I whispered a prayer, looking past him at the emptied bedroom across the hall. My eyes fell to the darkened floor. I want to be with them. The soldier went to the doorway, looked down the hall, and then returned to me. He grabbed my arm and walked me out of the library with the end of his rifle pressed between my shoulder blades. I walked, not daring to look at him. I heard footsteps and the murmur of voices coming from the direction of the president's quarters. Nilop? I forced my best friend out of my thoughts and focused on taking quiet steps. You can't hide. There's nowhere to go, he said, his breath hot and rancid in my ear. Thank you very much. Um, it's really, I'm sorry, I was, kind of like, I was like totally entranced by the, by, the, by the scene. We're recording this in the wake of the Pentagon admitting that the drone strike that they made in Kabul last month killed 10 civilians, among them seven children, and that it was a, quote, horrible mistake. Uh, you were trained as a pediatrician, and you often write from the perspective of children, how do you think about depicting, depicting the effects of war on childhood and children, and how does trauma differ between children who've lived their lives in conflict versus those such as your main character, Sitara, who have escaped? You know, I think that my approach in my writing and the reason that I'm drawn to the lives of children is the same reason that I was drawn to pediatrics. You know, I wanted to go into pediatrics but because I, I knew that anything that you could do early on in a life would help dictate the rest of that life. And there's so much longer of a trajectory to have. And, you know, that can go in a positive and a negative um, direction. This particular drone strike, as horrific as it was, and, you know, I truly see it as President Biden just trying to get the last word in in an argument. And unfortunately, seven children were among the dead. But these are not the only children 
the organization Save the Children has estimated that around 33,000 children have died as a direct result of the conflict in Afghanistan. And that's not to say, you know, not to include the ones who have died as secondary causes, you know, the malnutrition, the disease, the poverty, all the problems that flourish when we don't have any kind of stability. And so, you know, what do we have? We have very traumatized children who are growing up to be adults who are traumatized and living with all of that. And the children who are living through that conflict don't necessarily have access to any kind of healing. And they're most likely, you know, exposed to repetitive trauma. And so every day is a constant affirmation that life is a series of traumatic events. It becomes something that they anticipate and it's imprinted on them. And it really can affect the dynamics within the household as well. And we see that too when soldiers coming home from war and what the impact can be on their family. Now, children like Satara who have escaped conflict, they may have some distance from the actual event physically, chronologically. Whether or not they get access to some kind of healing and trauma-informed care, it depends on their circumstances. And they'll also be facing fresh issues, which I've tried to portray through this story as well. Things that I'm seeing in the people around me, things like survivor's guilt and the symptoms and manifestations of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, some of the children in the newly arrived that are coming from Afghanistan now that I've had a chance to either interact with or hear from from their experiences, they're actually worried about maybe a brother who didn't escape or a father who's still back home. And so it is an ongoing process of healing for everyone. So in the worst versions of the kind of false narratives we were talking about a little bit earlier, Americans are heroic and virtuous and the oppressed or the opposition are represented as lacking agency or malicious, either way, exotic, um, sometimes just vague. And your work focuses, of course, on characters um, living in Afghanistan and uh, particularly in this book and sometimes includes complex depictions also of soldiers or families of warlords. And I think we're, we were thinking here specifically of the pearl that broke its shell in which the character of Raima is married to a warlord. And a major presence in Sparks Like Stars, um, I'm avoiding spoilers here, is a soldier, Shire, who plays a role in Sitara's fate. And you went to Afghanistan in 2003. I'm curious to, to hear you talk a little bit about your depiction of the complexities, the political histories, um, the agency of Afghan characters like Shire. You know, it's, um, readers that I've heard from, they have picked up on, you know, just the, their own feelings, their own conflicted feelings around characters like Cher or the one from, you know, the warlord who's in the Pearl that broke its shell, where, you know, they have an overwhelming feeling in one direction, but then there are moments. And, you know, I think that what I try to do through these characters is to give people, you know, impart on people a little bit of what I've seen of Afghanistan directly, either, you know, in the time that I was there, but even more so just in conversations with my family, within our families, we have people who were on different ends of the political spectrum when they were back home in Afghanistan, people who were in different roles. And so, you know, not everybody who was in one political party is an evil villain. The reductive, you know, I like to say the reductive is seductive, that we want to believe in the good guys and the bad guys, but it's not always that simple. And, you know, some of the images that come to mind right now, and I, I don't say this to, you know, rationalize or justify or kind of sanitize the Taliban, but, you know, once the Taliban took over on August 15th, we started to see these images coming out on social media, images of these Taliban warriors on a merry-go-round. 
on paddle boats that are in the shape of like swans on a lake, you know, swinging. They created a swing uh, with rope and were swinging from the wings of an aircraft. I mean, these are people who just, who probably didn't have a childhood. They have spent all this time, you know, fighting. Um, but in that moment, you could see a tiny glimpse of humanity. And and that's what I wanted to, that's where I always find is most interesting is in that gray area. Because I think that's where the most value is, the most uh, the most learning the Taliban used to be called, you know, freedom fighters. So they were our friends and then they were the evil Taliban. And now slowly you hear this narrative being pushed out that the Taliban are aligning with us to help us fight ISIS and help fight this war on terror. So, you know, we have an understanding that psychological manipulation is real, that, you know, you can't really shoot people in the head and expect to end them. You've got to find ways to change their minds so, you know, that that's really what it was. It was an it was a mission to create a little bit of humanity with the purpose of understanding that that's where we need to be working. It's on people's minds. What was that? Oh, the movie about the guy who helped fund the Mujahideen, uh, Somebody, oh, the- Somebody's War. Charlie Wilson's War. Charlie Wilson's War. God, what a bullshit movie while we're talking about things that are bullshit savers. Like, I see that movie now and I'm like, oh my God, what, 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 who made this? How could this have occurred? I mean, what is it like to watch a movie like that for you? Did you, have you seen it? Do you know the movie? I've seen it. I think it was, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think what I, what I also draw from that is like, wow, it just takes like a couple people with cocktails to change the direction of a country's future i mean change an entire narrative and and that hurts and to get a soundtrack and make it seem really fun yes because you know what about what about everything that had been going on before charlie wilson was clued into it right like why wasn't that important enough to guide our foreign policy and our decisions but that's just not the way it works sometimes it's like you know it takes celebrity involvement or or you know something else that's flashy in order to to get our attention Earlier, we discussed how the Sour Revolution prompted a still ongoing phase of occupation and insurgency from the Soviets to the Mujahideen to the 93rd Division to individuals such as Amir Dado. Am I saying that right? Is that the right way to say it? Okay. Uh, And of course, the U.S., Afghanistan has witnessed a series of new leaders promising to put an end to bloodshed and establish equilibrium. How does your own writing address these promises or false promises? And how do you, as a writer, resist the bullshit saviors when they come to save Uh, a place like Afghanistan. So I think it's, you know, step one is to acknowledge and recognize the bullshit savior narratives, right? And, you know, for one, so there are certain headlines that come out and and talking points that you see, you know, coming out from behind podiums with, you know, a lot of fervor, like the United States spent 2.3 million in Afghanistan or on Afghanistan. Okay, so why don't we take one step further and analyze where that money went? And some really great people have done that work, right? We see the vast majority went to companies like Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, and General Dynamics. This is the military industrial complex, right? It's not some boogeyman. It's a real thing. And those companies over the past 20 years have created very, very happy shareholders, right? You said 2.3 million, but I think you mean a bigger number trillion. than that. Yeah. 2.3 okay. trillion. Did I say million? Yeah. yeah. And then the next one is, you know, the U.S. withdrawal 
there was a narrative going around that the Afghans didn't fight for their country because of this, you know, precipitous collapse. And then this narrative that the, the Taliban came in peacefully, despite the guns over their shoulders. But in the past 20 years, we've lost nearly 70,000 Afghan lives, Afghan soldiers, not just civilians. And that is a heavy toll on the country, right? That is a lot of trauma. It's a lot of grief. There's another false narrative that Afghan that women's rights aren't inherent to the Afghans. Um, you know, interestingly, Cheryl Bernard, uh, who's been associated with different think tanks, in February of 2019, she had an essay out that just ruffled a lot of Afghan women's feathers. She was basically saying that, well, you know, it's time for the Afghan women to step up and do their part in their fight for their rights. Um, she said it's time for them to put their shoulders to the wheel, and you know, fight they should for lean them in. just as we did. Yes, lean in, right? Um, and then, you know, that's that's a total affront to the Afghan women who have been doing exactly that, who have been leaning in. The United States didn't save Afghan women. It created favorable conditions for them to uh, to continue that struggle, to continue that fight with an acknowledgement, too, that at times the United States created fa unfavorable conditions to women's rights. And then, you know, here came this mission accomplished. We have the U.S. has signed a, a deal with the Taliban. We're going to end this endless war. And so in February of 2020, which is one year from that essay, Cheryl Bernard's husband, Zalmay Khalilzad, the U.S. envoy, signed this deal with the Taliban, which is actually a total and utter capitulation of the United States. Uh, and it was a defeat that was disguised as an agreement. And, you know, the release of 5,000 Taliban prisoners who probably did not go on to, you know, become small business owners or anything like that. So what I hope to do through my stories is to first and foremost center Afghan lives, center their voices. They are the protagonists. And in these stories, we're going to follow their struggles, their mistakes, their achievements, and whatever they get to in the end, it is because of their efforts with, you know, other people along the way. I think American people are absolutely generous in spirit. They're eager to help. I see that now in the resettlement efforts with, uh, you know, around the newly arrived. But American policy is not really a reflection of the will of the American people, unfortunately. I so appreciate your, your comments about the way that Afghan women's rights are depicted, their own agency and all of this. And in Sparks Like Stars, your characters also address women's role in the larger political story with some frequency and also with some humor, which I appreciated. Um, and... A lot of the conversation in the wake of U.S. troops pulling out of Afghanistan has been about the fate of Afghan women under the Taliban. And there is, of course, valid concern about that. Even the idea, though the idea, is, as you've noted, of, of Americans as saviors is wildly problematic. And there was that recent New Yorker article about Afghan women eager for Americans to leave. Um, I'm curious uh, if you will crystal ball for us a little bit, if you could talk a little bit about how you imagine the future of for Afghan women now and, and your own choices in writing about them going forward. It's really hard to, to have a lot of optimism, to feel really good about what's happening. You know, I think that Afghans and Americans were together in feeling that there was there. We had reached a time for the United States to depart Afghanistan. But there were a lot of different ideas about how that would play out. I think because also the United States' continued presence really was just fuel for the Taliban about this, you know, American conquest here and the, the presence of foreigners but after the United States announced its withdrawal, what happened in the country was that the Taliban launched a targeted assassination campaign. So women, journalists, activists, university students, these were their targets. 
And this is continuing on now um, that they're targeting these activists, these former government employees, the women who were members of parliament, they're entering homes, they're taking their cars, they're taking um, any means of security that they may have. NGO offices that have been run by women have been shut down. And again, like they've gone in and just confiscated the cars and taken them. What they've done as a policy, now we see that girls are limited to a sixth grade education. They're still allowing women to go to universities. So I'm not sure what they think happens between sixth grade and the university. Because In America, we call that homeschooling. Yeah. So I, I don't think they've ironed out the, the, the details here. Um, and then in some areas, and there, there really isn't consistency in what's happening across the country. So in some areas, some girls are going to school, maybe they're going to private schools. There's, it's just very inconsistent. Um, and then in some areas, they have separated, right, the genders. And so you've got curtains that are going up. Um, in some places, they've got to be in separate rooms, but separate is not equal. We know that. And especially when there's a shortage of women teachers, so you're not really going to have the teachers present with the students. Uh, women can't go back to work in a lot of places because the Taliban say they have not basically figured out how to work in the presence of women. The women journalists were removed. There were many, many women journalists on air. They were removed. And the Ministry of Women Affairs was erased. And its physical location was taken over by a new, well, not new, it's just the return of the Ministry of Vice and Virtue. Um, that all is on top of the general problems, the financial, like pending financial collapse, the banks that are open on and off. People can only withdraw maybe $200. There's inflation. So it's exacerbating the poverty, limitations on healthcare access. And there's just really a lack of productive governance. So it's really hard to feel very good. Um, but I will say that, again, we're relying on the determination and grit of the Afghan women, of the university students that I hear from, of the brothers that I've seen videos of brothers saying that they will not go to school without their sisters. And so the Afghan people themselves, I think you've probably seen some images of women standing up to protest, of Afghan people standing up to protest directly in the face of the Taliban. Isn't there also a rural urban issue that's going on here that the Taliban are Pashtun, that that's a smaller a group in Afghanistan that they are also that they are, are that that group is primarily uh, rural. And so there is a sort of as there is in America and a rural uh, urban divide. There absolutely is. And I think that, you know, I, I don't want to pin the demise or the Taliban movement on any one particular ethnicity, because I think that is, that's another thing that Afghanistan's always been a victim of. It's this ethnic divisions and this tribalism. Um, I think what you see, uh, you know, is that, yes, there are regional differences, but in the cities, you also have areas where people were able to coexist, where they could be peaceful. Um, the Taliban themselves have definitely been guilty of, of ethnic discrimination. And so certain populations, like the Shiite population, like the Hazara population, they have been victims of the Taliban for sure. And uh, they're, you know, one of the groups that we worry about the most is being at risk. Okay, so thank you. That was a great answer. I'm sorry, I'm just listening because I really, I mean, I, you're giving us such good information that it's very hard to get in Western press, even despite our vaunt. You know, like, I don't get this from the New York Times, basically. Um, your stories emphasize women's agency. And on that note, we can't neglect to mention the work Afghan women are doing to advocate for their own rights. As you mentioned, um, you're on the board of the Afghan American Foundation and are a member of the U.S. Afghan Women's Council. 
You mentioned to us that you're doing a lot around evac evacuations and resettlement. Can you talk to us a little bit about that project? Sure. And so this isn't something that I was prepared for or, you know, thinking of doing, but all of a sudden everything changed very, very dramatically. Uh, and then, you know, on August 15th, we all kind of sank in with this realization that the country had just collapsed. And then it was a moment of like, oh, dear God, what about the people that are there? And we knew because of these campaigns, these targeted assassinations that had been going on, who would be most at risk. And these were the women who had been leading these organizations that were working on justice and peace and the advancement of women's rights and the you know progress in education. So those of us who had been up until that time together, just advocating for Afghan women's rights in general, the involvement of women in the peace talks and um, an advancement of women's voices on, you know, on the national stage. And, and these were voices that we had been amplifying from within Afghanistan, right? But all of a sudden, we had to look to evacuate family members, women, journalists, minorities, and, you know, people who had worked with the security forces, and understanding that anything that we were doing, you know, was not a standard protocol. We were all figuring it out as we were going along. So people were, I mean, literally, I have spreadsheets that I'm holding, that I'm keeping and sharing with different sources in hopes of getting some of these people evacuated. That's what we were doing during that evacuation phase before the United States, States closed down its operations at the airport. And, um, and so it's become, you know, what people call this digital Dunkirk where we're really trying to organize on these sheets, name, date of birth, location, uh, cell phone numbers, how can we get in touch with these people, um, what is their risk, and trying to, to share how, how um, at risk some of these people, how vulnerable some of them are, and then also their family members. So it has been, I mean, it's been heartbreaking, but it's also just been a moment of, you know, connecting with other people who were doing the same thing. Um, and last week I was actually in a room with a bunch of these people, which was the first time. Most of this has been happening, you know, um, very, very virtually. So what we're hoping to do, you know, what I try to do through the writing is to take what's happening on the ground and try to reframe some of the stories that I think are being portrayed in the wrong way. And, you know, we see women in need of saving. We see women who are meek and broken in Afghanistan. But on the flip side, Afghan women are really funny. They're bold. They're creative. They're persistent. And that's why we've had women in the positions that they have been in now after 20 years of a chance for them to actually climb and succeed. Um, and so that's that's really it. It's this moment is a demonstration of their humanity and the demonstration of our willingness to stand with them. Thank you so much. One last question. I'm curious as to how I've heard other writers say this, and I have mixed feelings about it myself, but sort of the, the notion that when an event, capital E, happens, one needs the distance of a decade or more to kind of think about how one might portray it. And I'm wondering how you imagine fiction writers might write about this troop withdrawal a decade, two decades from now. Well, if we look... Uh, historical examples. I mean, I think there will be one group of writers who will be trying to, again, craft those classic American savior narratives and, you know, glorify the U.S. involvement and maybe hone in on those, you know, archetypal stories where an American sa soldier is, you know, saving saving his his comrades, his brothers, and, 
And I think that there will be another group of writers trying to dismantle all of that and take us past the lies and the uh, misconceptions to dig at the truth and help us learn from it. Um, I'm also really worried because I think that there may be other events that are bigger and more pressing for us to be writing about at that time. Because, you know, what happened in 1978, that revolution, what happened when the United States turned its back on Afghanistan and it was taken over by extremists and became a safe haven for terrorists, we saw what the outcome of that was on U.S. soil. So I don't know, in a decade from now, two decades from now, will there be another huge capital E event, as you say, that will consume our attention and, you know, take writers to try to figure out how to process that as well. I don't know. Nadia, thank you so much for joining us. That was really um, a fantastically informative conversation. And I want to encourage our readers to go out and pick up Sparks Like Stars and um, also your other books. We appreciate your joining us. Thank you so much for the chance to have this conversation. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast on Literary Hub. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these places, you'll find links to our LitHub radio show notes, including some of the readings and other texts we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on LitHub's virtual book channel and on our own YouTube channel. Our new website, with our full video and audio archive and episodes grouped by theme for educators, is at fnfpodcast.net. Big thanks to our producer, Anne Knigendorf. Until next time, happy reading and writing from Fiction Nonfiction. 